Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Advice Show. From advising clients to practice management, this podcast will give you UK and global insights into the financial planning profession. I'm Chloe, a reporter and new model advisor, and today we are talking about decentralized finance. Um, I'm currently at CityWire's Southwest Retreat, and we've just had an amazing panel about the opportunities of decentralized finance and what it means for the advice profession. Um, so we've decided to bring that conversation to the podcast. And I'm joined today by Caroline Hughes, co-founder of LifeTies, a company that is building the first fintech metaverse. And Lavinia Osborne, uh, host and co-founder of Women in Blockchain Talks, the leading female blockchain educational and networking platform in the UK. Um, so Lavinia and Caroline, thank you so much for being here. How are you both doing? Great. Thanks so much yeah. for inviting me. Yeah. Yeah. Really awesome. So much. Yeah. We're ready to dive in. To deeper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we're in a really um, fun room. They've put us into a bridal room um, with um, a wall of flowers behind us, which is a great, <laughs> a great place to talk about DeFi. So, Lavinia, you mentioned during the panel that the UK had a case of, of FOMO when when it comes to to crypto, and the I think the government is kind of trying to play catch up with the kind of ambitions to um, become a crypto hub. Where do decentralized finance opportunities lie for the UK, do you think? Mm, great question. So finance is evolving. I mean, Bitcoin has shown that. And as I touched upon on the panel, what Bitcoin showed is that we can own crypto asset. And what DeFi does, it shows how we can leverage Bitcoin as an asset um, within the different formalities or the different platforms of traditional finance, but in a decentralized way. I think it's really important just to break down that DeFi ultimately is about removing the middleman, the banker, the brokers, essentially from the whole, um, from the whole financial um, interaction and engagement. And so, of course, it increases efficiency, it increases transparency, um, trackability and traceability and gives ownership to the individual who is going down this road, this DeFi road. However, finance, just on a traditional level, it's so overwhelming for most people. Um, getting your head just around crypto, much less DeFi, is still such a huge barrier to mass adoption. Again, as I touched upon in the um, panel, that there's about 3 million wallets, crypto wallets out there, and only 1 million are actively used. So that goes to show there's a disproportionate amount of people who are interested and maybe got their feet a little bit wet by, open, by creating a crypto wallet and actually actioning their crypto wallet. So there's a lot of work to be done in regards to education, which is why it's so important what I do in my community, which, by the way, is open to all genders, and of course, what Caroline is doing, her community and many other communities around the world that I'm aware of that promotes um, education. So going back to your question in regards to where DeFi stands in all of this, mm. you know, the UK always led. They are, they've led in finances for so long and now there's this paradigm shift and it's like, well, where do we stand? And they're not leading. So um, education is key. Um, and then DeFi, in my opinion, um, even though there's a lot of people, crypto adopters, those out of those crypto adopters, the pool is so small that is looking at DeFi. 
So I personally think DeFi is more aligned to institutions rather than the everyday person, which is the clientele I generally deal with. Um, but even some institutions, it's not that they're struggling, but it's new information. Um, so there is a long way to go um, for the UK number one to lead and for DeFi to be a big part of that conversation. And it's fascinating, isn't it? Because, you know, for the longest time, the UK and London in particular has been the financial capital of the world. You know, yeah. you've got London and you've got New York, but it has been London that has led the way in many things, and particularly in kind of creating new forms of instruments and new ways of, of trading. But it seems to be that now that we have the ability to have digital versions of many of these things that the UK has led in for so many years, we're a little bit behind the curve. Mm. And when you see the multinationals that are coming in, often, you know, the, the large um, investment firms, in the main, they are the big US firms that are leading the charge. You know, it is the Black Rocks and the Fidelities that are making the big moves into DeFi. With, you know, they've recently announced with their ETFs and they've announced with Fidelity's recent um, 401k contribution that you can have in Bitcoin. It's going to be very interesting to see how any of the UK banks and other you know, asset managers, etc., actually start to respond to that because I do feel that we are behind the curve. Mm, yeah. Can we catch up? I, I don't know. It's difficult to say because I feel like the, as Caroline touched upon, the UK has been the epicenter, or London has been the epicenter of financial markets mm. and creativity. Um, but it's always going to be harder for the leaders to adapt to something new when they're doing it off the back of not wanting to be left out, not because they're innovating. They're two very different things, two different beasts that are, that incentivize change, you know, innovation, and not wanting to be left behind. Um, so again, I do think you know the, the UK the UK government talks about the Bitcoin, CBDC, central bank digital currency, and I haven't heard much more else about it from last year when it was announced. And now we're talking about, or they're talking about, wanting to be that uh, centralized hub for crypto. And talking about creating an NFT with Royal Mail. Okay, what does that mean? Mm. What is the long game? And this is the reason why I, I feel like it's a bit of FOMO. But I think that no one should ever underestimate the UK. Mm. Um, we are a nation of very bright minds and innovators. Um, and so it's just a question of us finding our groove, I think. And I think, I think there is a possibility. Anything's possible. And I want to believe, and I also want to see the UK be, not necessarily the epicenter, but definitely one of the key leaders in this space, um, because we always have been, and I think there's, there, is a, there is potential for us to catch up on what that actually looks like, and the impact for not just the institutions, but the individuals, the citizens. I think it's going to be quite interesting to watch and see.
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about how this conversation around DeFi is is relevant to people in the financial advice profession. And one thing I noticed during the panel was that people would raise their hands and they would preempt their question with, I don't know anything about Bitcoin, though. Um, so why do you think it's important for people working in financial advice to understand it and to learn about it and take interest in all of that? I think there's two aspects to it. There is that the sort of the pure advisor, the pure sort of institutional layer, which is that as the big investment managers are moving into this space, you as an individual are either going to be pulled with it or you're going to find yourself on the outside looking in. Um, and that, of course, is an existential threat in terms of where your clients might want to hold their portfolio. You know, I don't think this is going to be a case of you're going to just find a small cabal of big sort of asset managers that are open to having you know, crypto asset holdings and uh, enabling people to invest in those portfolios and then everybody else. I think this is where it's all going to go. So if you are not able to talk about it, then you're going to struggle because you're going to increasingly be seen as people who aren't actually able to advise on the sort of the whole market and the best allocation for your clients. Um, it's, and I understand that for, for at this stage that it's at, and I think the panel, I think the world's wild, the words wild west were um, mentioned a few times by different people. It is, it is still very, very early days. You know, DeFi is like a toddler. Mm. At the moment, right? It's a toddler that can barely walk. It doesn't talk very well. It falls down a lot. It doesn't really make itself understood very well. You have to do a lot of things for it. But it is a toddler that is going to grow up very, very rapidly. And the, the amount of money at a pure venture capital level that is being put into solving a lot of the problems to be able to make DeFi more accessible on an institutional level, but also to retail investors is enormous. Mm. You know, the, at least as much as went into fintech, but actually many, many, many times uh, higher. And the talent that is moving from institutions and from sort of the first wave of fintechs into this space is also of a magnitude. And so when you look at the general trend, you as an advisor have to be thinking, right, there's something going on here. You can't keep the blinkers on. You have to be, you have to start educating yourself because even though DeFi is only a toddler, it's growing up really, really, really fast. And your clients are going to start asking you these questions. They may not want to, they may not want any of it in their portfolio right now, but they're going to be asking you, should I? Should I be thinking about this? And you really do need to have an answer. Um, what I will also, to add to what Caroline has said, um, you know, when we think about DeFi, there's three key elements, okay? There is lending, and um, there is staking, and there's liquidity, right? So these are key essence of DeFi. Yes, there are issues in DeFi because it's at the beginning. Uh, issues around uh, liquidity, uh, vol uh, volatility, issues around convoluted tools. You know, the tools, the UX around the tools aren't there yet. However, this space is moving very quickly, as Caroline said, and it's all about innovation, right? 
How can you create the tools or how can you create the tools of the future or add to the tools of the future in this space if you're not even aware of it or don't understand it or don't take the time to understand it? This is the space that you're going to be working in, okay? In addition to that, we have the next generation coming up. These next generations are the one who's going to be taking over the family office. The family finances are already intrigued and interested in this space. So do you want to continue your client base or do you want to lose your client base? So this is something that one needs to think about just on a 101 business sense. The internet came along, what, 20, 30 years ago and a lot of people wrote it off and a lot of businesses became no more when we think of Kodak when we think of AOL, when we think of blockbusters, it didn't adapt, okay? And so the question is, and as Caroline touched upon, are you going to move with it or are you going to be left behind? So the key essence here and the reason why wealth managers need to, to look at this space is one, the next generation are interested in this space. So there is a market already growing. Two, you know, you can't complain about a system if you're not part of the solution. If you're not part of the solution, then you're part of the problem. Um, and three, um, the, the next element is that DeFi is just part of the whole crypto space. Bitcoin is a crypto asset that people, uh, it, it, it showed us that we could hold Bitcoin. And what DeFi is now showing us is how to use it as an asset within the different elements of financial um, instruments without the middleman. Mm. And this is something that you need to know in order to be the best that you can be in your business. Um, something else that was um, also briefly touched upon during, during the panel was how the, the lack of gatekeeping and decentralized finance kind of can be appealing to people who are generally not really catered to by traditional financial institutions. I was wondering if you could tell me a bit more about the, the advantages of crypto over traditional finance for marginalized communities specifically? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really interesting thing to get your head around, right? And I think perhaps um, if we explain maybe a little bit here about what decentralized finance actually is. So if, we, if you think about generally to get access to any financial products as a, as a retail consumer, you have to go through a bank or a broker. There has to be a balance sheet business, generally somewhere there, that has you know that holds that balance sheet and then is either lending to you or allows you to save and then gives you a rate of interest, all of these different things. And what we talk about when we talk about decentralized finance, and there it's a spectrum. It goes all the way from what we call, just to confuse anyone listening, CDFI, which is centralized decentralized finance, which is kind of a hybrid model, mm. which is where you, you do have an entity that is a form of gatekeeper, but a lot, but doesn't have as much of the power um, around who can access the things. It's just the, the structure of the business is such that there is sort of an entity there that um, allows people to take these decentralized products. And then you have at the far end, fully decentralized financial products, which are effectively peer-to-peer. -peer. Mm -hmm. So the easiest way to think of it is we already have it. We already have peer-to-peer -peer lending. You know, that was part of the first wave of FinTech 
was that digitally we made it easy for people to become balance sheets themselves, mm -hmm. to be able to provide liquidity to the market and then to allow, it was specifically sort of SME businesses to be able to borrow. Instead of going to a bank, they would do it peer-to-peer. -peer. All we're doing here with DeFi is putting peer-to-peer -peer on steroids because peer-to-peer -peer can now be anybody, anywhere in the world, providing some liquidity to the ecosystem so that somebody puts the money in and somebody else can take the money out. And it, whether that's lending, whether it's borrowing, whether it's trading, all of these things that we already do within the financial system, but we're just allowing people to do that in a way where they don't have to ask somebody for permission to do it. Mm -hmm. That permission is set out in the smart contracts on the blockchain. So the software that runs all of these protocols, they're called, actually sets the rules for how you as an individual can interact with them. So providing that you meet those rules, you can do the thing, you can do that transaction. And so we move away from a system where we have banks and other parties who effectively act as the gatekeeper, who also have those rules, but those rules aren't transparent to us. We don't usually as a consumer know what the rules are until we put in an application and hope for the best. Right? Whereas what these smart contracts do is they make those rules transparent. You can as long as you can read the language, you can read the rules and you know where you stand. And so what that means is that all of a sudden, you don't necessarily as a consumer need to have a perfect credit score. You don't need to live in a particular jurisdiction that makes certain products available. It means that we remove the sort of individual level of potential bias and all of those kind of things, and it, it makes it so that it is wholly transparent and provided you meet whatever the criteria is that's set out in the contract, then you're in. Mm -hmm. And that does change things fundamentally because it, it shifts where the power sits. Mm -hmm. I think that was a wonderful explanation, Caroline. Yes. Wonderful. And I, I think ultimately, I know that you believe in this because this is what your business is about, financial equity. Mm. And this is one of the beautiful things that blockchain has brought to the public. If you look at Bitcoin as the first real use case study of blockchain, it created so much transparency and trackability and traceability and in doing that efficiency to many people around the world. And we saw this in the adoption of Bitcoin in Africa, for example. You know, it removed the intermediary of, say, um, you know, Western Union. It, so it reduced the fees. That means that the person who was receiving those funds was able to get more. That allowed them to invest more. That allowed them to increase their social economic situation. This was not seen before, you know. And so Bitcoin and blockchain in and of itself has created financial equity. To the degree that we would like to see it, not yet, but the potential is there. And as Caroline perfectly and beautifully said, it's allowing anyone from anywhere in the world to be able to access liquidity in a way that has never been done before. It's been too many gatekeepers, depending on you know the country that you're from, the amount of money that you earn. And for many of the women in my community and many women that I know around the world who have taken on crypto, they've taken it on because they feel like it's giving them an opportunity to um, add to their pension, to, to finally 
be part of the financial game because data shows that most women will uh, retire in poverty for many reasons, the, 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 the pay gap, taking time off work to look after children, etc, etc. And also, what a number of uh, data research has shown is that a lot of these women are like, it's giving me more confidence in understanding finance. It makes me want to learn more. Whereas the system that we have now, it kind of segregates and it makes people feel like they're not worthy because I don't earn enough. I don't live in this place, you know? And that is a very internal mindset um, situation. Whereas crypto is like, it's up to you, you know? Get out of your own way. If you want to start with 10,000 a month, you know, individually, as an individual, and just see where it takes you, then you can. There's no gatekeeper say, you can't, you don't earn enough, you're not allowed, it's too little. And I think that's a very powerful thing. And um, just one last question to, to wrap up. Um, how do you see um, DeFi evolving within the next year? Where will we be in a year? Yeah, great question. So, I mean, 2021, we always, now that I'm in this space, I used to think that fintech moved fast. And now that I'm in this space, it's almost like one year in normal, it's like dog years, it's like seven years, isn't it? Everything goes so, so fast. So I hate making predictions because I'm normally really, I'm always saying, this was going to happen in 12 months, it happens in three. Mm-hmm. But um, last year we saw a massive acceleration in terms of the, just the number of different DeFi protocols that were created. So just the proliferation of people building in this space was huge. The My trends for this year are, we're going to see a lot more fiat to crypto, what are called on-ramps. So that ability for people to be able to um, very easily swap their fiat of whatever currency for different cryptocurrencies and be able to then enter this space and do things with it. So that, I think, is, is still a massive problem to solve because... Right now, it's quite complex for a lot of people to do it. So once you once you have that, and then all of a sudden, it makes it very, very easy. You can just literally go on and use your debit card, and off you go. Mm. And that's going to be huge for people. So the, the fear on ramping is going to be enormous. And then I think that the next piece from a consumer perspective is wallets. So to be able to you know buy cryptocurrency or to be able to use any DeFi products, you have to have what's called a wallet. Um, and it's basically like your login. It's very, it's like your login. It's like having a universal login. So instead of having to go to each kind of different website um, with a, and you're supposed to have a different password, although everyone has the same, mm-hmm. you have one single wallet and that acts as your login, but it also stores anything that you buy. So if you're buying cryptocurrencies or if you're buying NFTs, you store those in your wallet. But for a lot of people, that's, they don't know how to do that. It's a massive barrier to entry for a lot of people. There's a lot of people working on how do we simplify that whole wallet and access to these. And I think once you have those two bits, you're going to have a lot more mass market consumers wanting to come and at least start buying more cryptocurrencies. And then the next phase is we really have to do something about how the DeFi protocols themselves look from an interface perspective. Mm -hmm. And you touched on this before. Everything 
that has been designed so far has been designed by people who are incredibly smart from a programming perspective, but they haven't necessarily spent the time to make things very usable. Mm. And you have to therefore be very, very comfortable understanding the jargon and trying to figure out how to use these things. It becomes like a puzzle game all of its own. And what we're gonna see, and it's one of the things that we're working to solve is, how do we make it feel as familiar to people as using it almost a standard bank account or taking out a standard loan, but actually with a lot of the friction removed because you don't have all the gatekeeping, you don't have to put in application forms, but just making that interface as easy as possible for the average person to be able to just get on, understand what they're doing and use the things. And if we can solve those things, then we're going to move from DeFi being this sort of 4% of cryptocurrency holders actually using DeFi to having, you know, we could have up to sort of 40% mm-hmm. of cryptocurrency holders actually being able to use DeFi because it's the usability bit that isn't there yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have to agree with what Caroline just said. The tools are so complicated. Um, it's so hard. Yeah. <laughs> Even for people that understand, yeah. Yeah. even if you know what you're looking at, yeah. you're still like, do I press this button? <laughs> yeah. like, what does that do? Like, yeah. it's, it's friction. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, and I think people need to also, there needs to be more education around what DeFi is, why you would use it. Because as I touched upon, most people, when it comes to finance and Bente, it kind of goes over their head. So to be able to understand the tools much less leverage them, they're two very different things. So um, there needs to there needs to be more education around um, that for the consumer, for, um, for uh, wealth managers and the institutions. I think they're going to be developing more, they're going to be partnering more because, you know, as Caroline touched upon, there's DeFi and then there is institutionalised DeFi, which there's more KYC, a bit more... AML, a bit more compliance because they need that, right? Um, and then you've got CFI and CFI centralized decentralized, centralized decentralized finance, okay? And what that basically means, and Caroline touched upon this, is that um, it's it's a instead of it being on a public ledger, it's on a private ledger. So it's still blockchain. There's still no gatekeepers, but only a certain number of people would have access to it. So that's CFI, DeFi. And so I see um, that being expanded because institutions are going to be looking at how do we leverage this? How do we don't want to be left behind? So we want to go in, we want to invest. And hopefully the money that will be invested into the space will help with creating the tools that will trickle down to the consumers, which will help with making it more accessible on that whole um, UX level. Yeah, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think we're going to see a very similar journey to what we've seen. You know, we've gone from sort of unit trust and mutual funds to ETFs, and then unlocking that has allowed, from a technological perspective, from going from, you know, wholly managed uh, portfolios through an advisor through to what we've seen, which is sort of the self-service, potentially with an advisor, Mm. robo-advisor, and I think we're going to see the same mm-hmm. in DeFi. So I think for people who are listening, it's you're going to have, depending on where you sit as an advisor in the market, you're either going to be looking at, okay, so what are the big institutional players actually doing? Are they going to make it easy 
for me to give my clients some exposure to Bitcoin and potentially other sort of bundles of um, cryptocurrency or related. Because one of the things that we're already seeing is where, where um, institutions are giving exposure to sort of crypto uh, assets, portfolios, it's not necessarily, it's not cryptocurrencies themselves. Mm. It's, it's not Bitcoin and it's not, any, it's not Ethereum and it's not other altcoins. It's actually just giving exposure to those companies which are operating in that space. So I think I read earlier that a lot of these, um, where the portfolios have been built and the exposure has been given, it is to the likes of a Coinbase, for example, mm. or uh, NVIDIA, who makes the, you know, the graphics chips. It's actually packaging up which are the existing listed companies that you can build up a portfolio of, and, but which of those are effectively crypto-adjacent. That's kind of, I think, the trend that we're seeing at the moment. And what will be interesting to see is how many of the institutions start to give exposure to true cryptocurrencies, mm. not just companies, mm. not, you know, not just uh, representatives. Yeah, companies operating in that space. Mm. That's yeah. going to be, I think that from a, from a wealth perspective, I think that's the next one that we're going to see mm. is instead of it just being a portfolio of, of listed companies that have that have crypto elements to them. Yeah. So I would say just to, to, to for myself to wrap it up, um, is that you know if you are if you're listening to this, which you are <laughs> um, that you have to do lots of reading, you know, of course if you're listening to City Wire, look at who spoke on the panel. Um, you know there is a lot of it is a world west and one has to be very careful as an individual coming into this space and of course representing your clients assets um, but there is a lot of opportunity um, and the other thing that we don't talk about to a degree and I think we need to is recourses to scams to Ponzi schemes um, you know and I think in this space just the whole crypto space there's a lot more legalities coming in case law present law coming in um, that is showing people that you've had your fun, now we're getting serious, mm. you know, the sheriff is coming into town. Um, so there is a huge amount of risk because it is so new, but there's a lot of opportunities. So take your time, do your research. Don't be afraid to dive in, you know, just don't execute just because it, it, it you know, this name is saying it because sometimes people put their names behind a project without them themselves doing their due diligence. And a lot of companies have fallen foul to that. Um, so that is what I would, I would say as a round off one. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's the, it's the acronym that's used the most, isn't it, in mm -hmm. this space, which is 
D-Y-O-R, it stands for do your own research. D-Y-O-R, you do your own investigation. Well, that's a great note to end on. Lavinia and Caroline, thank you so much for being here. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, If you'd like to get in contact with us about this episode, we're on Twitter at New Model Advisor. Or feel free to get in touch with me directly. I'm at cmelly, M-E-L-E-Y, at citywire.co.uk. Thanks again, everyone. And we will see you next week week.